On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of groundbreaking Filipino thespian Vic Diaz. On this action-packed episode, we'll be discussing the cult film classic Raw Force from 1982. Welcome to Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz. I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always is the head of the Hamilton Karate Club, Doug Tilly. What's going on, Doug? Hiya! How about that, Liam? <laughs> Did you know that the Beverly Hills Karate Club was like filled with hands of death? Just true martial arts masters? Were you aware of that, Doug, before Is seeing this true? movie? Kind of sounds like it kind of looks like from the context of this movie that they just saw a couple of Chuck Norris movies and were like, well, I guess we're going to be doing that now. <laughs> Why did you uh, call it the Hamilton Karate Club? Don't you live in Hamilton? No. Where do you no. live? I forgot. I live you, in Peterborough, 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 Ontario, Canada. Lovely Peterborough, I'm Ontario, sorry. Canada. I'm sorry. so on my Twitter feed. Leave this in. Leave this in. I Here's the thing. Hamilton? Doug. Here's the thing, Doug. I only know two suburbs of Toronto. And the reason I know Hamilton is in the 90s, more hardcore bands came from Hamilton than Toronto. And yeah. so there was like shirts that said Hamilton Harker on them. So when I was trying to remember the name of your town... I thought it was Hamilton, and only now that you say it, I'm like, oh, no, it's Peterborough, because that's the those are the only two towns I know outside of Toronto, like directly outside. Obviously, I've heard Look, of I'm not trying to say that you should know what Peterborough is, because it's not a very popular spot, and it's not very good. It's not a great place to live. Sure. However, sure. I do mention it enough that I would figure that because I've never I don't think I've said the words Hamilton, except when I'm talking about the Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hey, hey, man, it was a it was a brain fart. And I think it's one that anyone who happens to be of a certain age and listen to a certain kind of hardcore in the 90s will know exactly why I said it. Liam, do you think that the people of Hamilton, Ontario, took a little pride when Hamilton, the, the, the musical was was like really big, even though it, it is in no way connected to them? Just the idea that people were talking about the word Hamilton. No, I bet it was the opposite that they found it really annoying. Because they would say that, because like there's a very popular musical called "Come From Away," which is about Newfoundland. It's about uh, yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes, yes. And like people in my province, even though that's specifically about Gander, which is a part in the northern part of the province, everyone in my province seems to love any mention of that. They were just so proud. All these people faking their Newfoundland accents, singing songs. But doesn't it? It makes. It makes it look cool, though. It's a positive connection. I get. Oh, it's a positive. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's. I mean, I suppose that's true. But but being called Hamilton would be a great connection because it's, it's the hip hop musical of the ages. No, it means that now it's even harder to Google their town, which was already hard to Google. Yeah. I'm just saying. I don't think it helped them at all. I bet you they're real annoyed about it. So, uh, as I as I already said, Doug, we're, we're talking about 1982's Raw Force on this episode. Yes, I'm keeping it going. I know, I know. Mm-hmm, okay. Um, and I don't know about you, Doug, but I have quite the history with this movie. You know, when uh, we've talked a little bit before about my sort of film history, but uh, before yeah, the only time you've ever seen movies is at X Fest during these marathons. Well, so here's the here's here's the deal. <laughs> I've talked about this a little bit that in grad school, I was getting more into, you know, film 
caring more about movies, but that was mm -hmm. often more about art house stuff. And and some like, you know, when it comes to European cinema, people know there's a weird gray area where art house and exploitation kind of smush up together. You Absolutely. Know? And so I was watching a lot of those movies. But when it came to like classic 70s exploitation, I only knew a few things. I felt pretty ignorant. And a lot of that changed when I moved to Philadelphia, which I did right after grad school. Uh, and people might be confused. Yes, I'm from Philadelphia, but I had moved away. I lived in Virginia. I lived in Princeton for a while. So I was moving back to what are you laughing at? Nothing. You don't <laughs> what like are you that doing I... in Virginia? Oh, I were I lived in Norfolk, Virginia for a full year, which was actually helpful because the neighborhood I was in, in in Virginia, in Norfolk, there's a place called the Oh, what's it called? It starts with a V, but it's an old timey movie theater and connected to the Vivisection. Movie... No, I think it's like the Vero or something like that. Oh. And connected to the theater, there's a video store. And the video store was essential for me, Doug, because I moved into town. Right oh. around the block is this video store. They had a massive collection of weird shit. And oh, I, I didn't quite know that I hadn't developed a social life in Norfolk until I went into the video store one day and everyone knew my name like I was Norm on Cheers. Oh. Like I walked in and they were all like, oh, hey, Liam, what's going on? And I was like, oh, fuck, I need friends. I got to make more friends here. Like, I, you know, I had just gotten out of college. Like I was only like two years out of college. <laughs> I had a lot of friends at home, but like moving to a new city and not drinking, it's hard to make friends. Even though I was working at a church at the time, a lot of those church people drink, you know? So it was like, sure. if I didn't want to go to a bar, I didn't really have a social life. And so, man, I was renting so many movies. And that was actually, Doug, when I got, this is a lot. You can cut this if you want, but I'll nope. tell you, this is that was when I really got into some of the Japanese and Korean horror was ah. even though that was after a lot of that stuff had come out, I discovered it. They had such a big uh, Asian film section. Well, it's hard to thing. discover it before it comes out. Well, I mean, they had already hit theaters. Like, a lot of people I know, they discovered those movies when they played at Film Fest and stuff. And right. I found them on DVD later. And, sure. you know, really just out of curiosity. Like, oh, what the fuck is this? Like, I didn't know to look for those kinds of movies. It was just sort of an organic discovery in this video store. Point is, Doug, when I moved mm -hmm. to Philly, I reconnected with Exhumed. Because I had gone to Exhumed stuff as a high schooler. But I hadn't been to any of their stuff while I was in school. So I moved back to Philly. They're really getting going at a new venue. And uh, I had not been to the Horathon where they showed Raw Force and Lady Terminator. But they did a double feature later. Raw Force and Lady Terminator, both on film. Right. And my brain fucking exploded when I saw this movie because I didn't know what to expect. And I was only just getting into these sorts of cult exploitation movies. Now, I had heard of this movie. I'd even seen the poster, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And so I think seeing this movie with no expectations really blew me away. But what I was really struck by is that was part of a wave where suddenly Raw Force was in the conversation. And you heard a right. lot of people talking mm -hmm. about it. It really became a thing. And lately, you know, here we are covering it. I don't hear about it as much. I don't see it uh, uh, sort of posted about as much. I don't, it's not as much a part of the conversation as it was then. And I really got myself thinking uh, about these sort of cycles in cult movies where it feels like the zeitgeist kind of discovers a movie and then it kind of goes away and then it comes back. So lately, I've noticed a lot more people talking about possession.
right? Oh, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I yeah. was stoked on Possession when that Blu-ray release came out like 12 years ago, right? And that's when I was like, oh, shit, Possession, this is a thing. And I saw it on film. I even saw it with a live score that was like an original score for the movie. Like, it was a big deal for me. And that's not to say it's not a big deal now. We just sold a Possession shirt for Rough Cut. But, like, it's strange how suddenly everyone's talking about it again. And so I just wanted to ask you about that. Like, when did you sort of – you know, first discover Raw Force, and have you noticed this kind of cycle? Are there any other noticeable cult films that you've seen on a cycle before for you? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And Possession is an interesting example specifically because it's, I don't want to make judgment calls here, but it's a good movie. You know what I mean? It's like, yes. it's actually good. And it, you, you could even argue whether it's it's really an exploitation movie at all. I mean, it's, it really is an art film. And but you're right. Some it has something to do, I think, with availability. There was a part; it was streaming recently, and I think there was yeah, a, a re-release yeah. in theaters. So I think it kind of built up the and a lot of people, it seemed, just had not seen it and and um, and we experiencing it for the first time. Wanted to talk about it, but you were right; it really heated up. I think over the last year, year and a half, two years, the cycle that you're talking about in regards to something like Raw Force, I think it comes about. It comes about in our in, in modern time in uh, in like the last five ten years is because there's been a lot of boutique labels that that kind of have to promote these things as they're getting new releases and have to find new things to constantly be shoving in front of people. But when it comes to a movie that a lot of people experienced on VHS in the '80s and maybe were having a lot of fun with in the '90s when video stores were like everywhere, the cycle that exists with something like Raw Force comes from the fact that I think it's really fun to experience once. You know what I mean? Some of these movies stay in the zeitgeist and stay in the consciousness. And I'm thinking of specifically, you know, the big ones like The Room and Troll 2 and all that sort of shit. Where people can revisit them again and again and again and have fun. And there's a kind of a culture that 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 arises around them. But there's a lot more movies like Raw Force where it's just like... Hey, let's have, you know, this movie looks wacky. This movie has some really odd and unique elements to it. And maybe it's even a movie that, that when you have friends over, you might show it to them. But it's not, A, it's not terrible enough that you can be just laughing at it all the time. Because, th frankly, there's there are parts, long stretches of raw force that are kind of boring. Um, and B, that it's not fun enough that you can just always just toss it on in the background. So it, there, there's a kind of a gray zone of cult cinema or, or exploitation cinema where it's it's one that you might revisit every decade or every five years or maybe have fun with friends, but not something that you're going to be regularly revisiting if you're the kind of person to even revisit movies. I know that you're not the kind of person, Liam, I think you mentioned before that you don't like to rewatch movies. You know, I don't, but I've seen Raw Force quite a few times. I think... Well, we'll get into this in a little bit, but I might be more of a fan of this movie than you are. I mean, I think enough. that's pretty clear simply because I had not seen it. I did not watch it on VHS. I've not never seen it on film. Uh, the first time I saw it was actually during the pandemic when you had us watch it for Cinepunk. I mean, I was yeah. aware of it. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. one of those ones that was kind of always in the ether. I knew it had it had a very memorable poster. <laughs> it has great poster art. And it was one of those things where, oh, I'll catch up to that eventually. But Really, I hadn't heard people like really push for it until you were like, oh, this is a lot of fun. This is really good. And I'm not going to disagree with your thoughts on it at all uh, until we get to actually talking about it at least. But it, it isn't one of those movies where it's just like so much wild shit is happening in it that I'm, I, I, I watch it and then I become like a, uh, a promoter of it and telling people, look, have you seen Ralph Force? You got to see this shit. There are things in it where I want people to see it so I could talk to them about it. But I also feel like the conversations end pretty quickly because it's not as interesting in its poor qualities or its good qualities as some other films are. 
That's interesting. I I will agree that there are definitely seams. Uh, like I said, we'll get more into discussion of this movie in particular, but I do wonder if that's part of what goes on too, is that it catches on in certain pockets. It felt like to me, when I saw Raw Force, I was like, holy shit. And then when I went to the internet with my holy shitness, I found a lot of people who were similarly holy shitted on it. And in fact, one of the first things we covered on Cinepunks was Raw Force. And we got a massive response because of that. And that was back when we didn't know how to record sound. So the episode sounded like shit. But people were still excited we were talking about it. And there's even like a well-known beef where for a long time, Josh would tell people that me and him were going to start a band someday called Raw Force. (laughs) And our first record was going to be, you know, Karate Zombies or Kung Fu Zombies, whatever it is, yeah, yeah, that's original you know, title. that's the original title. And uh, and then a friend of ours joined a band called Raw Force, and oh. Josh got really bummed. He was really mad at that dude. And I think like, uh, you know, part of me was kind of like, I don't think it's you know an intentional whatever. But then also I was kind of like, but I get it. You've been talking about this for years. Yeah. And also and, you're probably never going to do it. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I think just the idea like I get why Josh took it a bit personally cuz he really thinks it's such a great idea. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think he's wrong. It's a good name for a hardcore band and then you could reference this fucked up crazy movie. That's kind of fun. Uh but it's like the people I knew who had seen it were very excited about it. Now granted, there's probably a whole bunch of movies that, because they played at a certain time at Exhumes Harathon, took on more of a life than they would have if you just watched them at home by yourself. Oh, absolutely. So, like, Night of a Thousand Cats, great example. Boarding it's House. It's funny you say that. I'm wearing a Night of a Thousand Cats shirt right this very second. Oh, and who made that shirt, by the way? No, not you, actually. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to say I was going to say me, but Justin, the guy I do rough cut with, he a long time ago made a, a night of a thousand catcher, and if I could still fit into it, I'd wear it right now. But <laughs> I can't fit into it anymore. But I do have the poster he made for that movie up on my wall. I mean, the point that you're making though is a very good one. I saw at an all night movie festival a black exploitation movie called The Black Six, which stars a bunch of um, yep a bunch of football players yep. and they're on motorcycles. Yep, 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 yep. And it's it's an, it's a fun, entertaining movie generally, but the crowd was going wild for it, and I would have told anyone. And over the next week afterwards, I'll be like, have you seen this fucking movie? It's so entertaining. And if they went and actually you know, sat down to watch it, they'd probably be like, what's the big goddamn deal? It's just a bunch of people riding around on motorcycles. I mean, I, I just think sometimes it is true that seeing a movie with an audience, especially an audience who's excited to see it, it changes the experience. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a great thing. Sure. Uh, but I do think you need to keep in mind as – if you are someone who either programs films or who just writes about and recommends movies, try to tamper your excitement where it's clear you like something, but that doesn't make it universal. I mean, there's music I like, as you know, Doug, that I think is fucking magical. But if I know your taste, I might not recommend it to you. I might even steer you away from it because I know that for you or whoever, it, it, the person I know whose taste it is, that this might be your fucking, you know, wolf's bane. Like, this is the shit that, like, makes you want to die, you know? But I might <laughs> think it's amazing, you know? And so, like, if I know someone who likes wild shit and doesn't care if it's not perfectly executed and doesn't mind if it's a little bit slow at times... I think Raw Force is right up their alley, but we'll get to that specifically. But it is well, I mean, it is interesting how they catch they catch fire. I mean, Lady Terminator, right? There's a point where I would have assumed any psychotronic film fan had seen Lady Terminator. Yeah. But I haven't seen anyone talk about Lady Terminator for like five years, I feel like. Like it just doesn't have the cachet. It I see people did. post clips and stuff from it sometimes on social media, but you're right. It's not it's not like a big part of the discussion like it was when it first had like a big DVD release and everyone was talking about it. 
Um, just going back to your previous point, I, I've always thought that you can't do this. Like a written movie reviews can't be written where you start with a paragraph saying the context in which you saw that film. But context is so important yeah. in terms of establishing because, you know, it's one thing, you know, among people who are too online like you and I. We know that when people go to movie festivals, right, when they're when they're going to Cannes or where they're going even to Toronto National Film Festival or whatever, Sundance, that there's you can't you can trust certain aspects of the reviews that come out of there, but you can't fully trust them because people get into these um, uh, festival brains where movies, you know, they appear better or sometimes worse than they actually are. Because of the context that you're seeing them in, maybe it's because you've seen nothing but good movies. Maybe it's because people were going wild. Maybe it's just a false feeling that you get because of the atmosphere that's surrounding you. And that can happen in all sorts of different contexts, especially because, you know, if you see something as a preview and people are very excited and enthused about it, or maybe you see it two weeks in or two weeks after it gets released and it's an empty theater, or maybe you're watching it at home by yourself. Look, the experience of watching Raw Force in my living room by myself, hey, it was still fun, but it's not as fun as it would have been if I was it at uh, an all-night festival or a double feature like you saw it on film or even if I just saw it with a bunch of friends, right? It right. really does change how you see things, and it smooths out a lot of rough edges. I think that uh, it's one of the places – we'll move on to the movie here in a sec, folks, but just, nah. one, one, just one more thing. I really do think that there is a hole in film theory where people do a lot of – writing and theorizing and critical work around the production of the movie. And people do a lot of writing and critical work around the reception of the movie. But there isn't as much writing about the exhibition of the movie. And there is to the extent of like, there's some really highfalutin theory about what happens to people in the theater. You know, they want to write about it as a religious experience. But oftentimes that's the kind of fabulation that just uh, obfuscates the point. You know, it's like, it, because I've described the experience of a theater as something religious, therefore we can't break down the elements. But as someone who went to religion school, all you do at religion school is break down the elements. Even though, right, right, right. even though if you are a faithful person, you believe that each of those elements, despite how practical and goofy they are, they imbue something with more meaning in the world. You still talk about the nitty fucking gritty. Well, no one is writing in a theoretical way about the nitty gritty of exhibition, and yet we all have these ideas about movies. It's it's one of those things. I feel like people are writing about the nitty gritty, but only in the context of how degraded it's become. That's well, the sole topic. Exactly. Well, so like with, with something, you know, very intelligently, when there was a lot of, during the pandemic, there was a lot of directors who were saying, my movie is made to be viewed in a very specific way, whatever, whatever. Uh, you know, editor of Fangoria, Phil Nobile, friend of the show, was like, Hey, have you been to a movie theater lately? Like, if this is so important to you, you need to go check out what movie theaters are like. Because guaranteed, no pandemic, your movie's not being shown the way you think it is. Yeah, yeah. But like, for the most part, people don't seem to give a fuck. They they only think about the ideal setting for a movie, and then they never deal with the economic reality that most humans aren't going to get that because all of these theater companies are trying to save as much money as possible. They're operating on a fucking razor thin edge, and where they cut costs the most most is the quality of the exhibition, let alone this other layer that we're talking about, which is even if you do see the best possible projection, or let's even put in another realm, the most interesting projection, your personal state of being affects your reception of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's irrelevant. We always say, well, you shouldn't think about that. Well, you can't help but think about it. So let's have someone think about it in a more uh, 
focused way, in a more constructive way. But that's part of how we under, especially because film, unlike some other arts, does involve so many of your senses, you know, combining together that like, why don't we deal with that more directly? And we just don't. And I don't understand why that's not part of the conversation more. Especially you know, when, in some cases, we have, like, seats that shoot water in your face. Yeah, right? And shit exactly. like that. But we're not talking about, like, the ex- the actual human experience. It's just a weird thing. We don't have to figure it out now, Doug. But it's just one of those things that I think about well, a lot. I just wanted – the one topic that I've heard in the last couple of days that, that kind of plays into this, even though we're now talking about a movie that is – 1,000 times more mainstream than Raw Force is the, the, the Spider-Verse movie, which you have seen at this point. Love it. And a lot of people are talking about how the dialogue is very difficult to understand. And understanding difficult, like, the, the sound making it hard to understand dialogue has become a very common topic of discussion over the last couple of years for TV shows and movies, not just in Christopher Nolan movies. But it just, it, is it the, the that filmmakers, like you were saying, design their films for an ideal setup that almost no one is experiencing? And that sucks. That really that means that that you can't contextually feel like you've seen the movie. Like that's an, like we see this all the time with because we have people who we know people who are obsessed with getting the best version of a movie on a home format. And it's just and for them it's like, well, I want to see it as close to how it was supposed to be seen as possible. And maybe that is so impossible for the average person at this point that none of us are seeing a movie in its complete form. You know what I mean? Uh huh. One hundred percent. And of course. That's a limit then on the art itself, because, you know, in order for an art to thrive, even though there is the popular version of it, there needs to be new territories and experimentations. Well, how the fuck do you do that unless you can completely control the exhibition, right? You can't do something new and then send it out to uh, thousands of theaters that then do whatever the fuck they want with it, you know? Yeah. And who knows what that experience is going to be. And, and the thing so- is, you can't even do it. Like, remember when uh, David Lynch would have sent along with the prints of his film the instructions on how to project it? Yes. Well, that was, like, that's cool and great. But, like, that you couldn't do that now because there nope. is no projectionist, right, that you're giving the instruction to. Well, I mean, and so the, the number of times that they're spending millions of dollars to make this, you know, whatever K print, and then someone's streaming it over a computer... Or you or projecting it with the with the three D lens on it, so it's all dark and impossible. Oh my god, it's so fucking annoying. Okay, hey, we could actually do a whole episode talking about exhibition and why it sucks, but an even less popular episode than our usual ones. That sounds crazy. Yeah, that would be sick. I'd love it. But instead, we're going to talk about a movie that I think uh, at one time would have been one of our more popular episodes, but for some reason is not as much in the conversation, maybe because it's not very good, or maybe I'm right and everyone else is wrong. And that is 1982's Raw Force. So we'll be right back to discuss Raw Force. Big John Taylor, mercenary, soldier of fortune. He's more than a man. He's a walking death machine. Candy O'Perrin, sexy undercover cop. Her deadliest weapon is her body. Mike O'Malley, Hollywood's top stuntman. What do you want us to do? Fight our champions. Only this time, the action's for real. And Rick Chan, black belt. Primed for action with one blow. The death blow. Only two words describe the power and fury of this unstoppable team. Raw force. Join them. 
because they're carefree vacation. A group of martial arts students is heading to an island that supposedly is home to the ghosts of martial artists who've lost their honor. A Hitler lookalike and his gang are running a female slavery operation on the island as well. When the two groups meet, all sorts of crazy things happen, involving cannibal mugs, piranhas, zombies, and more. It's 1982's Raw Force, uh, which I guess was was named in some markets and was originally going to be named Karate Zombies or Kung Fu Zombies. I keep getting right. that confused. I think it's Kung Fu Zombies uh, is what it was initially called, which is a great title as well. But though I have to say, just like you were saying in the opening, Raw Force that's a great name. It's a it's, really good title. It's very good. It's very good. Uh, so this was directed by Edward D. Murphy, who apparently also directed Heated Vengeance uh, in 1985. And that's it. That's uh, it. Interesting. Also wrote Heated Vengeance as well as this movie. Uh, and then you have a note here, Doug. Between 1991 and 2000, he played 12 different characters in Law and Order. Uh, yeah, the television crazy. show Law and Order. That's he crazy. actually has a, a lot of act, a lot of like really minor acting credits, but sure. it seems like that was more of his focus of his career was acting. And I think in terms of credited Law and Order appearances, maybe he only has one, but apparently he played twelve different characters. Still pretty admirable, though. I always get the impression that if you live in New York City, you can pretty much just be on Law and Order. It doesn't take a lot of effort. I I knew I knew someone who their side gig, so they had a, a job, but their side gig was being an extra in episodes of. Not not just Law and Order, but all kinds of cop shows that shot in New York City. Sure. And they just did that. And when they first started doing it, it was to break into acting. But within a year, they're like, that's never going to happen. So I'm just going to take this money and meet famous people. And that's it. And I think they ended up being in 300 episodes of various TV shows, but <laughs> never with a full credit, always as an extra. And yeah. I just thought that was hilarious. And, you know, if that's your goal, fucking do it. Who cares? You know? Uh, I mean, it would be cool to be able to put together like a reel of your appearances and it being like a lengthy thing, but it's just you in the background while other famous people are yeah, nearby. Yeah, I think that's really fun. <laughs> uh, uh, so this movie stars Cameron Mitchell as Captain Harry Dodds, Jeffrey Binney as Michael Malley, Hope Holiday as Hazel Buck, Jillian Kesner as Cookie Winchell, which, by the way, every time they say Cookie in the movie, it's why is she named Cookie? It's just a weird it's it's offsetting, off putting every time I hear them say it. It does make it memorable. By the way, yes. uh, Jillian Kesner, of course was the titular firecracker yes i was gonna bring that up as well mm -hmm. this is our our second julian kesner movie uh which i prefer this to firecracker but it was neat that like i at least recognized her um john dresden jennifer holmes ray king and of course vic diaz as monk love that um a lot of people talked about camille keaton as girl in toilet uh i don't know who camille keaton is uh, oh from the... uh I, I spit on your grave Ah, there it is. Okay, okay. That's why there were so many notes from from on in the IMDb about Camille Keaton is in this movie. She's the girl in the toilet, and I'm like, yeah. okay, cool. she's very hot and very uh, nude in this, and that is a great combination for this particular movie. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, it's not. By the way, he isn't listed in this cast list, but I also got to bring up Ray Milanzo uh, as uh, the. The cook on the ship. Sure, um, right. Yes. Also in Firecracker, uh, best known as being kind of the Filipino Bruce Lee. And I don't say that as uh, jokingly. He was like a, one of those Bruce Lee clones, except he was Filipino. He made like literally dozens of movies in the 70s in the Philippines where he played. There were martial arts movies where he played like a Bruce Lee character. I wish we could see some of them. I have a couple of them that are unsubtitled. Sure. But I just, I think he is like, he's the one performer who seems like he knows what he's doing in this entire movie. There's a lot of him fighting in it, and it's strange because 
I think thematically the movie wants to rely on uh, the white members of the Beverly Hills Karate Club. But yeah. when in the actual fights, he's doing a lot of the fighting. You know what I mean? Like the big chunk of the fighting. And I, you know, it's not that he doesn't get any beats in the movie, but he doesn't get enough like actual character beats in the movie. In my opinion. No, very much not. And I, but I also like that there's a whole karate club full of people who can't kick above their own waists. <laughs> well, the, the one, the one tall guy can. They're yeah, very much, can. I'm, it's, I'm just it's, joking it's basically like the chef and then the one very tall guy. But the other two dudes are like not very good at this at all. And, and yet we just keep seeing them fight very poorly. It's, it's, it's one of the themes. Um, Hey, we're getting into the, the the bits and bops here. Let's get back to the main question first, which is, Doug, what do you think of Raw Force? I already got a feeling on it that you – this isn't in your top ten. But but walk me through your feelings on this movie. I mean, I think it's a lot of fun. I'm not trying to knock it as, as uh, something that you can have a really good time with. But it is a little ponderous, particularly because it sets up this island of martial arts zombies and then spends like 40 minutes, 50 minutes on a boat – of people just like doing a bunch of gags. Now, to the movie's credit, they put a shocking amount of nudity into that uh, section of it. This is a very nudity-filled movie, um, and and for this era, it, that's not uncommon. But even for this era, and yeah, one of the things we haven't mentioned is that Jim Wynorski, uh, who we've recently been talking about as the director of Chopping Mall, of course, on our You Don't Know Dick show, he edited this movie, uh, and he was specifically brought in to kind of make it peppier. And I will say that. I can imagine if you add 20 minutes to this, it would be really difficult to watch. But it does move at a fairly good pace. It's just that there's so much on the boat. It's like watching um, Jason Takes Manhattan. You're waiting for them to get to the island the whole time. I made a joke that it's uh, this is uh, that Triangle of Sadness was a stealth remake of this movie. <laughs> it's got the same sort of structure. Uh, no, but it's a lot of fun. It's just that the characters suck. And the audio is really weird in the movie. That's the thing that I really took away from this viewing is that it's – I think most of it is post-dubbed, right? Most of the audio is, including Vic Diaz doesn't use his own voice in this. A lot of dubbed dialogue. But the other weird thing is it's almost like they had a directive that they needed to fill all the silence in the movie because there's always people in the background talking. It's just constant like ADR, people just making like random statements in the background. It's just a lot going on at all, uh, all I do, throughout. I do wonder, though, if some of that ADR is because of all the cutting. Like just the couple things I read that Wynorski said – it does feel like there was an interminable amount of the boat that like part of the plan for this movie was less like, uh, uh, let me, we'll get to this, but just as a, as a, as a preview of what I want to talk about in a sure. sec here, this movie feels like a mashup. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Doug. This movie, this movie feels like a mashup of a lot of different trends. And I suspect from what Wynorski said that one of the major trends they're trying to cash in on was the sex movies, right? That sure. there's a lot more of this movie, even than what it is, is naked people on a boat. Yeah. And Wynorski really came in and was like, well, we need less of these naked people on the boat, which is, you know, probably not popular with some of the producers. But, you know, when you've got a movie that is it's already pretty long honestly it's it's yeah. it's it moves a little better for me than i think it does for you but i think i am still amused at the ridiculousness of the whole thing and how stupid it is even though i think other parts are glorious i am spending a lot of time kind of laughing at this movie and one of the things is this boat sequence which is 
from a narrative perspective, completely unjustified. The, when we first get to the boat, that all makes sense. We're setting up yeah. the characters and whatever. You're introducing some characters, but that, that's the strange thing about it. You get on the boat and it introduces like another dozen characters and then they just go away. That's why they I was joking die. about They're all dead. They're all dead. They all, I guess, die on the boat when it sinks. And like, there's never any mention of them. But some of them get developed fairly well. I know I'm, one of the dis- the common discussions about this movie is the woman who ends up getting like tied up on the bed and she yep. tells that story about being a mobster's girlfriend and stuff like that. And she's like, well, she's just going to go away and <laughs> never be seen again. I mean, my vibe on it, Doug, is very much that it is a literal cash-in on a bunch of things that they thought were going to make them money. Do you think I'm sure. being unfair in that? Because it, it, when I say – sometimes people say that and they're not saying I have any sort of insight here. What they're saying is – it feels like maybe it is this thing. And what I'm saying to you, Doug, is it's so much that thing that I'm almost certain it is that thing. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like what else justifies the insane combination of elements in this movie other than, hey, we saw a bunch of other movies were making money, so we put all those things in this movie. Yeah, but the thing about trend chasing, especially in this era, is that you don't usually mash them all together, right? Why wouldn't they just have a sex comedy on a boat? Why wouldn't they just have a martial arts movie? Why wouldn't they just have, like, a zombie slasherish movie? Because you can put them all together. Well, when you put them all together, then you end up with something that potentially gets very confused. I mean, you don't see, you know, sex comedies mixed with... <laughs> zombie movies that often and there's probably a good reason for that and it's also the other kind of weird I won't call it a complaint but certainly a notable thing about this movie is that tonally it's really all over the place because sometimes it's very broad in its comedy but also they want us to take it not seriously but they want to take certain threats seriously um, and also kind of feels like sometimes they're making it up as they go along like they really don't know like that's all the stuff that is supposed to be so hilarious with the Cameron Mitchell character and his the woman who owns the boat and they're going back and forth. It's like I understand that that uh, the woman who owns the boat was only in there because Cameron Mitchell was dating her at the time. And I think it's kind of fun that they have this combative relationship. But it's just like that doesn't really go anywhere. Who gives a shit about any of this? And then you got this lead character. I guess he's a lead, right? That's the Michael Malley character played by Jeffrey Binney. And he was... You know, a fairly well-known actor. He was on Star Trek, and I think he was at on Battlestar Galactica a few years before this came out. But, like, like who is he? He just works at a karate club. We don't know anything about it. I guess he says that he's, a, he's an accountant during the day. That's literally all the character development we get for him. And he's got kind of a squeaky voice. Wait, so is that the one who wants to fuck the other guy's wife? Yeah, and I, that's supposed yeah, to be that's a good a char- thing, too. That's a, that's a character development, right? <laughs> that is true. Though that's only as much as as the guys as, as that woman's husband is, where his character development is, he is horny, he is drunk, he is a coward. That's it. One of my favorite characters in the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, I think that's I think that's the thing for me, Doug. And I guess I should put this out there. We've talked about this before, but I think we have friends who are uncomfortable with the idea that you could enjoy a movie by laughing at it. Right? They only want to laugh with their movies. Right. And for me, with this movie. I am laughing at it and with I'm I just think this is the one of the more ridiculous things. And part of it is this idea, hey, we need this comedic captain and the owner of the boat that he who is like just herself, just a crazy. We need this relationship to add a little levity to the script, which is dumb. Right. Or, okay, we're going to have these criminals who steal women to bring them to the monks for Jade. Let's have the head of the gang look and act like Hitler. For what? Yes. Re- for why? And why does he have a team of like 
biker punks as his like gang in the Philippines. Also, and one hippie for some reason. Yeah, and one hippie. And also, why do the monks have to eat the girls? You know what I mean? Like there's there are so it many It gives things. them the power to bring these martial arts experts to life for reasons that we like we never see those martial arts martial arts zombies like fight each other. You think that's what they'd be doing all the time. Well, yeah, and they there's only one of them who protects them, which this is the other thing I was going to point out. We only see one samurai on the island. And he is a white man. And yeah. I just find it so confusing because they were able to find Asian martial artists for all the other zombies, except for the one who's dressed like a samurai. That's a big white guy with a big white guy well, mustache. I mean, the only lead, <laughs> our lead Chinese character is actually a Filipino man. So, I mean, I, I don't think they care that much about the nationalities. All I'm, all I'm saying is. Why dress yeah, him like a samurai? It's just yeah. strange that he's the only samurai character, and he's so obviously a giant white blonde yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, I, again, I don't want to focus too much on the on each individual goofiness, but I do think there's a lot of elements that, for me, make a very silly sandwich that I am fucking laughing at the whole time. It's a it's a movie that definitely invites you to laugh at it, right? Because right. it it is it is not taking itself very seriously, but it definitely wants you to like. It's like we're having a good time, you know, have fun with us. And then there's also elements like when the fire is burning the, the boat and it's just overlaid flames and you can see it kind of bleeding over into the background. It's just like, oh, it's also kind of poorly made at the same time. But that's fun, right? Like that makes things fun when when that there's that big explosion on the dock at the end and the zombies that are left on it are just like because they're just uh, dummies at that point And they're sitting they're standing stock still while the explosion goes off. That's amusing. That's fun for me. So I'm I'm okay with things being poor sometimes. I just wasn't as consistently entertained as you were. Mm. There's a lot of elements here, as we've pointed out, that are thrown in, whether we're talking about we're in the Philippines, so it's like Filipino exploitation. There's a whole karate, fun white people doing karate aspect, which might seem like a minor point. But if you really start digging into action movies of the early to mid-80s, a lot of white people doing karate. That was suddenly yeah, yeah. A, a new a thing. Uh, we've got zombies. And it's not just um, happenstance zombies. There's a large sequence where we get to see the zombies rising from their graves that is clearly ripping off any number of zombie movies. Yeah. Um, we've got Hitler bad guy, punks, uh, lots of sex jokes and whatever. There's so many elements from other exploitation movies. Doug, are there any other... Uh, exploitation trends or tropes that we could think of a way to throw into this movie? Because I, I really think they nailed everything they could have gotten away with. Is there anything they're missing that we could have found a spot for in this movie? I, in terms of the trends at that time, the only thing that's explicitly missing is a real slasher-ish person. You know, sure. like a single yeah, yeah, villain yeah, yeah. that is, that is you know... But because you would kind of have to make things more serious than this movie is, or go completely goofy with it uh, in a way that probably wouldn't even make it feel like a slasher villain. That's the only thing that's kind of missing. No, but you're right. It definitely is trying to pull from whatever was popular. I will say, though, like the zombie aspect of it wasn't that popular at the time, right? I mean, it was in Italy, but not really in the U.S. We're still a year before or so, yeah, a year I think it's 84, 85 is Return of the Living Dead. So, I mean, we're, we're not... We're not deep into popular zombie territory, but it definitely, like you said, it, it does feel like it's pulling from some of the imagery, even as far back as Night of the Living Dead, etc. right? I mean, how do you feel, though, Doug, about karate zombies as an idea? Because is, is this just fun maximalism, or is this a hat on a hat? Like, I, I kind of feel, like, on paper, 
you know, like I said, me and Josh were going to do a band and we were going to name the the first record like Karate Zombie Island or something like that, right? Sure, sure, sure. And that's fun. But in reality, do we need Kung Fu zombies? Like, do we need martial arts zombies? Or is that like, okay, yes, there's going to be... I mean, even to the extent that they function, right? Like, they allow the characters to both have martial arts fights and then also have, like, uh, uh, close-distance bazooka shooting and stuff. You yeah. know what I mean? Like there's a lot of there's a lot of actiony stuff that gets to happen because of these characters are immortal. But does it feel is this something that could be done in a way that would be that would be um fun without laughing at it? You know, could you see a version of this that isn't stupid? Is what, I, I actually think that the concept of these great warriors who uh after being dishonored in death are are asking to go to this island where they can be brought back to have to continue to battle in eternity as as something that could be it sounds almost like a a real like a, a movie that you might see come out of Japan or or China right where sure. where it's not necessarily taken entirely seriously but you could see a kung fu movie or samurai movie that takes that sort of concept and runs with it in a more serious manner so i think yeah i think the the general concept is something that doesn't need to be as goofy and silly as this is that said it's all the other elements on top of it that make it that way it's it's the uh, feasts full of exotic fruit and it's the monks you know it, eating women that somehow gives them the power to i like how they set up that whole meeting with the monks and then they're like we will help you get off the island if you do this thing and they're like well i guess we'll help you out and then it they, there's nothing there's no follow-up at all they just when they find out what the monks are doing they just immediately start killing them <laughs> it's a movie that just doesn't feel like it, it's that interested in the subject matter, no. and even the idea of these uh, like karate zombies or these martial arts zombies, you barely see them do any fighting, right? They're just jumping on people. It's not like they're they're having like fights on the sand, like one on one fights. It's really just the fact that there's a lot of them and they're moving towards our you know good guys that makes them any sort of threat whatsoever. I would have liked to have seen um, a real kind of mix. I mean, again, we're talking about a different movie that I'd like to have seen. But like you know, the fact that you have all these different kind of fighters, you do see a zombie throw a few throwing stars and things like that. But it could have been like a really neat thing if you didn't have to have a white samurai man on there. I, I yeah, I do think that this is not. It's part of the reason that it, I I so specifically see it as a bit of a cash grab because sure it doesn't feel like anyone involved in the making of this movie cares about martial arts. It's just an element of the story, but it's not featured as something important. You know, does that make sense? Every, every element of it is, is a little half-baked, which is, I think, by design, right? They didn't want to put – it's not one thing. It's a lot of little things that are not as good as 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 other versions. The, the things that they're imitating are a lot more refined than what this is trying to be. It's just that they had the resources, it appears, to have done something that was just a little bit more polished. So here's something that's bothered me ever since I saw this movie. Please. And it's silly. Like, this is a silly movie, so it's silly to care. But So I'm going to ask in a bit of a silly way. But I looked it up, Doug, and from Los Angeles to the Philippines. Now, for a long time, I thought that this movie was not actually set in the Philippines, but multiple times in the movie, they actually say the South China Sea. So they have confirmed for us, this is literally the Philippines. It's 18,000 nautical miles from Los Angeles to the Philippines, Doug. Are you taking this tour, this seemingly <laughs> casual tour that you just get on a boat in L.A. and then you go to the Philippines? Like, is that is that a thing you're going to sign up for? Because I hate to tell people, that's a really long fucking cruise, actually. It might even be longer than that, because that part where they get off the ship and are walking around the downtown area, 
I swear that they say they're in China during that part. Like they actually explicitly refer to it as being China or maybe Hong Kong than it is the Philippines, which means that they made a stop there and then went to the Philippines. I the the mechanics of it, I didn't actually uh, pick out that they mentioned the South China Sea, though now that you mention it, I do kind of remember that. But the fact that this is a, a movie that takes place, that is basically entirely filmed in the Philippines, including the part at the beginning where they're supposed to be in the U.S., um, I, this is one of those movies that still seems to be trying to hide that as you're watching. It it does feel that way, and I, I took it that way for a long time. But they on this viewing, I realized they mention it so much, partly uh, because of the piranhas, right? Which, that's the other act. Uh, I, I thought I had named oh, all yeah, the that's exploited a, right. elements, but then there's that's also right. piranhas. Yeah, there's no uh, quicksand, but there's definitely piranhas here. Oh my, that's true. If only there had been quicksand, then we could have really <laughs> hit all the bases on this one. Look, Doug, you something you mentioned that I think we should circle back to. This is a movie with a, a lot of what I would call unjustified nudity, right? There's just <laughs> a ton of nudity. There is some sex too, but there's even like a, an extended fight scene where a naked woman is tied to a bed and there's just all this stuff, whatever. Does this strike you as a particularly exploitative movie? Which... Maybe sounds more judgmental than I mean it, but there are a bunch of movies that I think of as very exploitative movies that are still kind of like fun to watch, you know, and you might wonder like, well, what what kind of asshole would even make a movie like this? Uh, so I don't mean it as like a judgment of the movie per se, but all the elements are here that say to me, like, let's exploit everything we can to make money, especially these the the bodies of these women. Do you feel like this is a particularly exploitative film? I mean, it is. I, it doesn't bother me necessarily. And if the women who were involved in it don't feel like when Jules Shepard talks about her part in this movie, it's very, very small. And she takes her top off. Someone basically takes her top off during a party in it. So she's topless for a little bit. And it's just and she says, well, you know, I get more screen time at that time in my career. I got more screen time when I took my top off. So I was willing to do it. And it led to bigger roles later. It it worked out in her case. It didn't seem like she felt like uh, she might have felt exploited because that was the only reason that she was there and got that screen time. But she didn't feel like she was being mistreated or mis or like told that she wasn't going to have to do that and then try to be tricked into it or something like that. That's the stuff that bothers me, right? Those stories about women who are like, oh, it's explicitly said in my contract I wasn't supposed to do nudity, and then they try to to pressure me to do it on the day or maybe it wasn't a comfortable situation. Those are the stories that that bother me if hey it's an agreed upon thing the fact that one of the appeals of this is that it was going to show a lot of naked women i mean that's and everyone agreed to it i don't see how that's necessarily exploitation but you see that when it comes to a lot of black exploitation actors who push against that label right it's like yeah i didn't feel exploited i was being paid the audiences were seeing it we were telling our stories but when you watch some of those movies and you see a lot of the tropes that play over and over especially like racist cops which you sometimes feel like Oh, that's also trying to appeal to people who, who agree with the, you know, you know what I mean, where they're yeah, using 100%. language that's meant to yeah, yeah, be, yeah, 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 yeah. To, yeah. So that stuff can be really unpleasant, and uh, especially, and you know, these it's there are different forms of exploitation, but I think an exploitation agreed upon is not something that anyone has to feel guilty about. Yeah, I I think for me, Doug, I I was thinking of it less. You were thinking of the word in more of its actual meaning, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I was thinking it just as a genre of film. That there's a oh, whole sure. bunch of movies out there that they're called exploitation movies because it feels like whoever made the movie was like, here's a bunch of shit that we can throw in the movie to try to make money. And in a way, I'm saying that is this movie. On the other hand, some of those movies, even the ones that I think are pretty good in some ways, I sometimes I feel embarrassed to show them because it's like, this is kind of gross. Oh, Something about uh, yeah. this movie is kind of gross. And I should feel that way about this movie. This movie is very much, for a big chunk of the movie, like, well, we don't want to have any fights yet. So just here's a bunch of nudity for no reason. Some of it's funny. Some of it's not funny. But we're just going to do that for a while because, hey, we got to do something on this boat. And I should think that that's really gross. But for some reason, in the context of this movie, it feels silly to me. It just yeah, feels it almost more feels a little- silly. It almost feels like a little winky. It's like, oh, we're being naughty now. Now oh, we're, we're doing, doing this the, part. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. It's it, one of the real big topics of conversation amongst our crowd of people over sure. the last yeah. year or so is the necessity of sex scenes in movies, right? And right. I think yes. we're all on the same page. Of course, there, there are movies that have them unnecessarily, but that doesn't mean they're unnecessary. It just means that that's what the, the person who made the movie wanted to include. I It's not that I'm pushing a back against the consensus of reasonable people. But I will say that there was an era where a lot of sex scenes were or or even nudity in general were included in movies because that's the only way a lot of people were experiencing this stuff, right? They're not yeah. going to the magazine stand to pick up yeah. a copy of Playboy because they'd be embarrassed. But this is a socially acceptable way to experience that. And now that we have literally unlimited socially acceptable ways to experience those things, they can feel a little unnecessary when you watch them in certain movies. Though in this movie, they just kind of seem playful. Right. I mean, yeah. it's unfair because it's all women and you don't see anything. In the, like there's not even a. Oh, that's shots. that's always the issue. Even with the, yeah. the movies where it's justified, there, it's always a scenario where you're like, where's where's the dick? Show me some yeah. dick. You know, like it, it, that's that's there's always that kind of inherent sexism to it as well. Yeah, I think that's yeah. always going to be. a th- So and oh, I do think that, at the time, at least that is an under discussed thing. The idea that the whole idea and structure of a movie has changed because of the climate in which we live. And that's not bad or good. It just means that when I revisit some 1970s movies that I might have seen on video in the mid 90s, when, again, I still didn't have access to a lot of naked people I could just see whenever I wanted the, the some of the appeal of that that existed even up to the 90s doesn't necessarily exist for me now. So I have to find other things about it that I'd find interesting. So lengthy sex scenes in movies can sometimes be a bit of a bummer simply because I, I'm not getting anything out of it because they were designed for a purpose that no longer needs to be served. That's yeah, fine. Like, it's just I, contextual, right? It does make me think, especially when you brought the 90s. It might be freeing, right? Like maybe erotic thrillers would be more interesting if we didn't have to justify nudity only to get people in the seats, right? Like not that there shouldn't be nudity, but sometimes it feels like some of the nudity was done just so that we could get you know, horny people to show up. Yeah. Uh, and then the rest of the, it, it does, it's not material to the movie. It, 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 can we do an erotic thriller in which the eroticism is not just about selling tickets, but it's for the quality of the film? Like, I think that would be interesting because, you know, it's, I, I don't know that that's always present in some of those classic ones. Anyways, it was just a question to me because I, I'm somewhat surprised sometimes when I watch the film because I have such silly feelings towards it it feels so silly to me that that i'll be like man there is a lot of nudity in this movie that is just like very leering but done in a silly way so anyways let's get to the i mean i mean i, I do think that it's a topic that is worth discussing but i don't know if we're necessarily the right people to that's discuss fair. it that's fair. if i was the, look I'm, I'm just gonna be straight up with you if i watched raw force with my wife who doesn't really enjoy 
horror exploitation movies, she could probably get a kick out of some of it. But she would find the fact that it's just a parade of flesh for a good 40 minutes to be a little bit ponderous, especially because it's also surrounded by very broad comedy, like that male stripper character who's like a goofball and shit like that. And it's just like, well, you know, if the movie's going to be Benny Hill for 40 minutes, there is appeal for me in regards to that. But maybe another person's watching this is like, when are we getting to the horror stuff? When are we getting to the martial arts stuff? And I can see that for if you're not going in wanting a hodgepodge of different exploitive elements that were popular at the time that you might be like, well, I like some of it, but a lot of it is just real garbage. I, yeah, I think that's, I mean, we don't have to sell a question up. for you. Yeah, by the way. This, this, sorry. This is a side question simply because I saw someone talk about it. Someone got a little upset on Twitter about the use of the word trash in regards to uh, particularly exploitation, horror cult movies, right? They think of it as a very kind of a negative were to use in regards to now in the case of what they were talking about the movie that was being referred to maybe trash would not be the word that i would use but i always thought of trash as being sort of a uh especially over the last 20 30 years or so it's really been established as a compliment to a certain kind of movie well i think that i think that's a larger aesthetic thing doug which is that um there are segments of uh, culture and uh, aesthetic interest in which embracing a negative idea of oneself is positive, right? So, um, this the concept make- of trashy, yeah, like the John yeah. Waters trashy, right? and and, gotcha. and and this makes sense to me, obviously, coming from the punk world in which using negative terms for oneself is like an embrace embracing a feeling that what other people think is good doesn't matter to you. And I think in a more modern context, people don't like that because they feel like embrace sort of sort of turning the negative around on itself doesn't always have value for people. So right. they don't realize that someone's saying like these are and to be fair, there are still people who look at exploitation cinema or let's take it even broader any out of the norm cinema as just bad because it's not popular cinema, right? Right. That's more of a reality for people than I realized. And that seems strange today when so much popular cinema is just stealing from classic exploitation. Like, you know, Fast X wouldn't exist without some of these 70s movies where people were risking their lives blowing their cars up. That's yeah. just a reality. And so mm-hmm. I get it that you that there are viewers for whom the gloss of these Hollywood movies is part of the appeal. And so they'll never connect to these older films in which people were taking real chances with their lives to do this in real life. They're never going to watch those movies, and that's fine. I'm not judging them. But I do think people are... There's a lot of negotiation going on around culture that is not popular as like, do we need to defend this or not? You know, I see this conversation happening in music where there's a certain amount of bands that are getting popular attention that are coming from communities that are not used to getting a popular attention. Mm -hmm. And some people in those communities are like, I just want to be in the basement and I don't want to leave the basement and fuck you. You know, there's a feeling there. And for other people, that's gross that you feel that way. Like, no, like, this is good. This should be in front of as many people as possible. And I do wonder if there are some folks for whom calling it trash cinema 
is helpful because it's a way to keep out people that they don't want to be there right, or be right. part. It's of not it. about devaluing it; it's about keeping it within a certain community. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. So, uh, you know, I think this is very interesting, Doug. But I do think we need to move to the essential question here, which is about Vic Diaz. You know, Vic Diaz, we've seen him do all kinds of roles. This is in some ways a classic Vic Diaz role because he is a villain, but also it is such a minor... He's recognizable because we know who he is, but it is not a uh, a Vic Diaz forward role. What did you think of him as just Monk in Raw Force? It's a shame because after the movie that we covered on our most recent episode, uh, I think The Beast of the Yellow Knight, um, where he has so much presence and is so good, you know, and, and you know, can, can obviously can obviously carry the villainous role of the movie. It is uh, it does feel like a step backward to see him not only just be in a small role in this, but also to have his voice overdubbed unnecessarily, I would say. Yeah, um, but. The reason, one of the reasons I wanted to cover this outside of the fact that I know you're a big fan of this movie is that when you look up Vic Diaz on the internet, the images that come up are almost exclusively from this film first. Like these are the images that a lot of people connect with who Vic Diaz was, especially him like laughing and smiling dressed up in that monk outfit. So it is kind of one of his key roles, even though, you know, he's part of an ensemble of monks. He is the one of two profiled one, one of the only two that get actual dialogue, even though it's not his own voice. And he is very memorable looking in it, but I definitely wish he had more to do. There's this movie is overstuffed with characters and overstuffed in particular with villainous characters, particularly if you uh, not only do we have the, the Nazi and all of his gang members, but also we have the monks and every single one of these zombies that are on the island. It really is overstuffed with characters that you're expected to kind of separate from one another. I could see a lot of people watching this movie. And if they remember anything about the monks, they probably would remember just Vic Diaz's face, but nothing else about that character because there really isn't anything there outside of these are monks who care about these martial arts for some reason and also eat women. I really do wish he was given more to do. It is visually – he is visually memorable, but it is so not an opportunity for him to show what he can do other than just smile creepily. Though to be fair – in the world of creepy, smiling background people, my man stands out as a real creepster. So, like, it's not that he, it isn't an image that will stick with you, but it really isn't much of a performance. And that is not on him. That's just what the movie is. So it's a bit of a bummer to some extent, especially because I do very much like this movie. And that's sort of my final assessment is that, like, this is one of those movies that I get why it might not click with some people. I get that it's not great in some ways just something about it is so ridiculous to me that i still enjoy watching it i still get a certain amount of pleasure from it it's not a a huge rewatch movie for me partly because i think it's still a little longer than it needs to be honestly uh but i do love it but when it comes to the point of this show it is not even worth it's really not. I mean, it's no. it's just not. If we were if we were not trying to cover the breadth of what we can, if this was more of a focus thing about Vic Diaz's career, you could leave this out. It's not an important moment in a lot of ways. Even though, as you said, Doug, for some reason, when it comes to images of him on the internet, it is very present. Uh, he is not very present in this movie. So I love it, but you could skip it if you're if you're just trying to catch up with Vic Diaz's career. This is a skipper, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> 
I still think it's a lot of fun as a movie, but I also think the contextual aspect I was mentioning earlier is really important for this movie in particular in that you need to watch it in a situation where those rough edges can be sanded off, right? Where it's just, it doesn't matter because you're watching with people or maybe you're not paying, it's so close attention that it matters that, you know, that you could look up and it's something silly or something fun or something wacky or something unexpected happening and you can just enjoy it on that level. I don't think it's a movie that requires or really benefits from being taken too seriously. I agree. I agree. Well, Doug, on our next episode, a ruthless vehicular gang rules the post-apocalyptic wasteland. That's until a muscled hero named Slade builds the ultimate machine gun, Equalizer 2000, and declares a one-man war on the gang's piece of garbage leader. That's in quotations, piece of garbage. (laughs) It's 1987's Equalizer 2000, featuring Vic Diaz as Bone. Uh, yeah, the image of this thing is ridiculous. This movie's going to be ridiculous. The question is, will it be ridiculous and amusing or ridiculous and terrible? I guess it is directed by Sirio H. Santiago, uh, who, of course, we've already covered in a number of movies and also made, what, like a dozen post-apocalyptic movies in the 1980s that were all shot in the Philippines. But like... I was I was going through them. I'm like, maybe we should do like a sci-fi one next. It could be a lot of fun. It was literally this poster or VHS cover image that I was like, you know what? We got to cover it. Could you describe this image for me? <laughs> sure. Uh, it's, it's a classic poster image where there's some things happening on the bottom, and then there's uh, figures at the top. At the top, there's a scarred, muscular man looking pensively off into the distance uh-huh. with a near-naked... Uh, buxom woman blonde woman in front of him with a choker and a very small tank top on and bikini bottoms and she's holding a massive machine gun with lots of bits and bobs on it that doesn't make any sense to me it's got like three barrels and maybe that's a a a a rotary gun attached to it too it's an insane looking gun and then underneath there's a bunch of mad max style altered cars smashing and exploding into each other in a wasteland and then it says equalizer 2000 in this insane font it looks like the craziest movie you've ever seen in your life which means it's probably not that good it's probably not that good but that gun is the wildest shit it's a gun that would be impossible impossible to wield impossible to carry yeah this line a warrior without equal, a weapon without limits. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? What are we talking about here? I don't know. I'm excited to watch it, Doug, even though I think it might be terrible. I'll sell it to you as well that one of the supporting performers in this is Robert Patrick from Terminator 2, uh, one of his early roles, here in Equalizer 2000. Yeah, with Richard Norton. It's going to be it's going to be magical. All right, Doug. <laughs> hey, if people want to know more about us and, and some of the other shows that we share uh, space with on this network, where, where should they go? First place you can always go is over to CinePunks.com, which has a lot of great writing and also a wonderful selection of podcasts, including the latest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord. There was a recent article all about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse written by our own Liam O'Donnell, who was able to see a preview screening of it. You can check that out right this very moment over at CinePunks.com or on your favorite social media sites, including Instagram and Twitter and Facebook under the title of Cinepunks. But if you just want to check out all the episodes of Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, you can find our entire archive over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, as well as our podcast devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Paul Bartel. One day I'm just going to have like a list in my brain of every single one that we do. Oliver Reed, uh, Vic Diaz, <laughs> of course. They're all over there. You can check it over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter, cinemasmorg, S M 
O-R-G. You can also follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. And I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Thank you so much for listening. Do us a favor, uh, you know, rate, review, subscribe, all the things that podcasts desire. And tell a friend. Let them know why you like the show and, uh, you know, get them interested in checking out one of the things that we cover. But until next time, we hope you have a good night. Bye-bye. Uh. <laughs>